COVID-19 has accelerated our use of technology. How we work and where we work has all potentially changed forever. And this presents a once in a generation opportunity. In the UK's case in particular, all of the incubators and the amount of time which prospects are willing to spend with you to help you is a massive boost to, to legal tech companies generally. This is Beyond the Capital from Supertech, a new series that explores the future of technology in the world of work. Our focus is the tech scene that's flourishing outside of London. I'm Hilary Smith-Allen, and I'm involved in the technology adoption agenda and passionate about opportunities across the UK. In this episode, we're looking at the evolution of law tech and its relationship with location and place. I spoke to James Quinn, co-founder of leading law tech company Clarilis, which is based in Leamington Spa, and to Joshua Walker, co-founder of Lex Machina and Codex at Stanford University, as well as being author of the book on legal AI. Well, it's great to have you both here. Why don't we just start at the beginning? James, tell me about your journey into law tech. Sure, sure. Thanks, Hilary. Um, so it wasn't the plan to, to get into law tech. I started off like most legal tech founders, going to university, studying law, going to law school, and then getting a job in a, in a law firm. I, I trained and practiced at a law firm in London called um, Slaughter May. That's where I started my career. And actually, I, I always intended to always be a lawyer. I remember my first day on the job, I said, I'm always going to do this job and, you know, always stay at the same firm and everything. But it was over time, the kind of a law of, of entrepreneurship was too too strong for me. And and I was doing a, a lot of drafting work in the firm. And I, I saw an opportunity to, to, to apply technology to that process. And so that really got me started. And then I, I got together with our CTO, who's also my brother, and he was he was designing risk and compliance systems for the for the banks in the city of London at the time, and so I was I was the legal side and he was the technology side. And then we we didn't actually decide to start a legal tech uh, company at all. We decided to start a law firm, and then that law firm was going to be based entirely around technology in terms of its delivery. So traditional service delivery to to clients, but all all backed by technology wherever possible. And it was only really when other law firms started to come to us and, and say, you know, the way that you guys are delivering, you really should take that technology product to market. So in our case, it was more the market came to us than we went out to the market. So it wasn't a grand strategic plan. I, it was almost those iterative stages to get us in. So so that that's how I fell into law, law tech. Thank you. And I definitely want to come back to some of those points. But before we do, um, Joshua, introduce yourselves, please, and let me know. Your journey. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, again, I, my background is in uh, starting Codex and then a company called Lex Machina. And it's funny, I have never thought of myself as being in law tech until you've asked that question. So, and, it's, and, I, and I guess I am, but I've always thought of myself as there's a client deliverable and there's a lot of things that have to happen for that client to be successful. And so that to me is, it's the same journey, right? It's the law journey. It just has multiple components to it. It's really interesting. So my journey probably started in Rwanda or Bosnia-Herzegovina, um, actually during the genocide. And I was gathering evidence as part of my undergraduate uh, work on um, the, the mass killings and some of the atrocities that were happening there. And I ended up getting a job through um, pestering someone at the State Department for a year until she gave me a job in Rwanda. And um, we needed a database. And I was working with people from Scotland Yard, 
uh, the, a lot of a huge number of Dutch uh, police and intelligence officers and military officers and prosecutors from all over the world, you know, Senegal, Australia, Canada. And we had no functional database. Um, you know, this, this very big, important operation, we were coming in after genocide. And um, my uh, boss was a, a gentleman named Michael Hurrigan. He's just a, a hero, He's passed away, unfortunately. Uh, he said, well, why don't you start by photocopying every bit of evidence we had and then putting it into binders for each of the cases. And he quickly realized as we started to do this that it would have taken 30 years to do that because we had millions of pages of documents. So um, I had to build the database from scratch using Microsoft Word. Um, and uh, it works uh, really, really well. Uh, it's still one of my favorite databases I've ever seen because it was uh, isomorphic with what we needed to do. We had 21 different investigations and the database was each of those uh, compartmentalized each of that. And then we, we ended up um, fortunately helping to con convict um, uh, all the targets uh, that, that we had uh, been pursuing. So it was, it was from necessity with no resources in Kigali, Rwanda that I probably started. The second piece is my father, when he was about 50, started a business, knew nothing about computers, started a business with um, databases and, um, and was able to do kind of predictive modeling for businesses, creating new businesses and investment. And so for me, Lex Machina was in some ways exactly what my father had done. And I'd see him do that but it was in the IP litigation space instead. So that's the short answer to your question. You both picked up on something there around the client, the expectation, the, the deliverables bit of, I suppose, law tech. You, you've already raised the point that am I in it or am I not? I, I deliver a service in a different way. So I, I'm kind of interested in that because law tech has this badge of being a thing and yet it is a service. It's, it, it's another way of delivering something a, a client needs so where where do you you know where do you both play in that market space and, and what are the pain points that you're solving for clients so specifically for us and, and you're, you're right to say legal tech is it's hard to define i mean our our part in that um is we sit in the document automation space so we we gather information about transactions which we then we then model and then use that information to produce all of the documents that you need to to achieve a particular task. And so, so for us, that task can be done manually by the, by the law firm. They can work with, you know, from scratch or from template documents and then they can produce those. But, but by using technology, it's, a, it's, an, it's an awful lot more, more efficient and um, faster and just a better, better end result. So the, the solution we're delivering is a, it's, an, it's an efficiency play and it's saving kind of valuable people's time. The, the knock-on effect to that, to the, to the client is that they get things faster, um, they get things cheaper, and that, that overall the market's moving in the right direction and that some or all of those efficiencies are passed on to them. But but then, you know, that very quickly gets into um, disintermediation from the, from the bottom up. So simple things, and we, we've seen this in the UK a lot, simple things that used to be done by lawyers no longer need to be done, need to be undertaken by lawyers. So you know, you, you, conveyancing is a classic and will writing's coming in. And that's partly through deregulation, but it's also, also partly through technology. Uh, Joshua, do you have a, a different angle on this one? Well, I, I think it's very complimentary and I think it's brilliant uh, what you guys are doing. And the UK is ahead in a lot of ways, especially in terms of data access, in terms of, of pushing innovation. Um, Financial Conduct Authority has an innovation lab. You know, there's, there's many examples of that. 
for me, in, and aside from academic and pro bono work, I've heard a book called On Legal AI. Uh, my day job is working for an insurance company. Uh, it's called Aon. If you're a Manchester United fan, that's a good thing. If you're Man City or somewhere else uh, who are doing maybe a little bit better these days, it's maybe not as popular, but uh, it's a giant insurance company. And we're an IP group within that. We're about 180 people, 50 of them are maybe lawyers. So it's very strange. And we have an AI stack and data scientists, but the client ROI is, so I'm at the, the, the tip of the spear, my colleague and I, who's an investment banker, and our job is client success. And for us, it's an M&A use case. We're using IP portfolios to try to get better outcomes in M&A processes. Some of the advantages are, are just like what you just said, procedural, having fewer things blow up at the end of your M&A deal, which can you know, spoil your lunch or your career or life, right, if you're the owner. Uh, reducing risk from those, those types of transactions, um, getting more interest from bidders you didn't know existed. Um, that's another key ROI we're hunting. And, and ultimately, though no one can promise this, is, is leveraging the assets you have to try to help the investment bank tell a better story about how valuable you are, like improving the value of the company in, its, in, in terms of how it's perceived. And so um, it's, it's very strange. I'm not practicing law to do that but it is very much grounded in the legal assets. Um, but the ROI is key. And every day we go out trying to think, how are we gonna prove that we've delivered this ROI and that ROI and, and, and it's really up to the clients, not us. Did that answer your question at all? It's, it's a big one. <laughs> it is a big one. And the theme that's running through my head is you're disrupting the flow, the workflow by definition and changing how value is created in that process. So that can, that's a change process. That can be painful. It has humans throughout all of that. So if you if you put technology in, random acts of technology, how, how do you then deal with the humans that go with that to actually deliver on the ROI of, the, of, of that intervention? And it's, it's often a big problem that I'm sure you've come across as well, Josh, that... that putting the tech in without the people around it in order to support the implementation and the, the you know, ongoing maintenance and getting the most out of the technology is a, is a massive problem um, for, for legal tech adoption in, in, in particular. And so, you know, we have to, we have to stop our enthusiasm sometimes for the technology and almost kind of reverse and say, actually, we need, we need to just make sure that we're in, in applying tech to legal we're solving an actual problem which exists rather than just trying to find the problem um, with, with the technology and that, that it's going to make a material difference to the, to the lives of the lawyers who are going to adopt it. Because one thing's for sure is if it only makes a marginal difference, they're not going to take the time out of their busy days to, to adopt a new way of working. And so the, kind of the, the change management process, which you, you mentioned, and the, the implementation of this technology is a, is a real challenge. I think to, to the other way of thinking about this issue is in terms of economics, our traditional model, the guild system model, and again, love guilds, they're really cool and and, um, and we cherish them, we have part of the IP guild. But uh, the idea of creating a, being crafts, crafts people and creating one thing at a time for one user and it's never used again, essentially outside of maybe a template, that is essentially what's being challenged. We're going from a essentially a high marginal cost model. Every document is unique. Every transaction is completely unique. To we're spending time on not just templates, but sometimes machines. 
that can automate kind of the interface between the document creation that are the documents that are necessary and what the client wants, which is not necessarily documents, it's to effectuate a change in their state, to improve their situation, whatever it is. So you go from a, a drafting a single document that one, one client can use once to creating a piece of technology or a set of documents that any number of users can use anytime. So if you look, how many people can use Google at one time? The answer is probably billions without breaking their system, right? Billions of people can use the same technological apparatus searched. And, and that's true of other technologies as well. Lawyers have been the opposite. But now, you know, for, for instance, when I was uh, litigating IP cases, it was, it was, a, it was a great and, 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 and challenging thing to do. But then I spent two years in a basement reading every single patent trial in the U.S., coding the outcome and then creating a classifier that automatically helped classify those, those, those cases too, so that people could see what's going on. So that, that kind of technological apparatus is, is a fundamental change, but it doesn't necessarily mean fewer jobs. It may mean that we need legal engineers, people that are, are combining uh, legal art with technology and that's, a, that's really exciting because um, we've only been able to service a tiny fragment of the legal of the demand for legal services. In, in California, we're hitting a 95% of legal um, demand is, is being unmet just by individuals. And, and I think that's also true by corporations. We're losing out. The legal market is shrinking relative to our economies because we're not efficient enough. And the big four and others are coming in and just being, being more sophisticated in how they innovate and integrate different teams. You're listening to Beyond the Capital with me, Hilary Smith-Allen. Please do rate, review and subscribe on your normal podcast app. And do get in touch if you have topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes. To reach us, email us on hello at supertechwm.com. I wanted to just shift the, the line of questioning, if that's okay, just a little bit, because this is beyond the capital and fundamentally interested in, in place and how that affects the business and what you're doing. So maybe Joshua, if I start with you, because you're not from around these parts. Uh, <laughs> <Can you> tell? <laughs> yeah, tell us about why you are in California and, and what the place aspect brings to the work that you're doing. Um, I think place used to be really important. Uh, I went to law school in Chicago in a, in a very, very quantitative environment and learned things. I, if I hadn't learned, I, I never would have been able to do a lot of the things that they were able to do. Um, but it was very conservative with a small C. Um, when you walked around Palo Alto, California, you walked into people that wanted to change the world regularly all the time. Uh, it wasn't that they were smarter, is that they, they had a different attitude towards change and the risk of failure. In Chicago, people didn't want to change their lunch plans, literally. And, and some of them did, right? This is a generalization. So I think the locus does matter in terms of the attitude towards change. But in terms of this community, in terms of legal innovation, there is a very, very global community of people that are committed to this space. And, and people know each other. And, and so Codex used to be a physical place at Stanford. Now it's, it's, it's almost entirely global. And so I think right now, place matters a lot less. Where I would really like, I think the two loci that are not so connected are probably elite law firms and sort of the most innovative cultures as well. There's, there's still a bit of a chasm, I think, between the kind of very rapid innovation world 
and some of the top lawyers because they're so sought after for their advice on very um, material items that um, they don't need to. So I think I think place used to matter a lot. I'm not sure it matters so much anymore. And that, that's that's my view. But uh, yeah, okay. and I think by the way, COVID has accelerated that that trend as well tremendously. Sorry, James, go ahead. Sure. No, no, I I agree with that last point completely. I mean the the fact that when I'm on the on the phone to somebody and there's no video, I feel slightly slightly uneasy um, these days. If you can't see someone that you're that you're speaking to, it just kind of shows how how far we've come in a very short time. For us, there's ways in which place you know where we're located matters to us, and, and other ways in which it in which it doesn't. I mean, I think what's important to us is access to our market. So before COVID, we were doing we were doing an awful lot of travelling, and certainly law being quite a traditional industry, if they're going to trust um, someone in order to license their technology and also to to work with them quite closely on an ongoing basis, then that normally involves meeting them. And so, um, you know, within the UK, our, our, our customers are, you know, all the way from Aberdeen um, down to the south coast. So actually being in the centre um, of the country worked out, worked out quite well for us. But then we would be always over to Ireland and we, we you know, frequently we've got an office in Singapore as well. And so um, we were all over the place the whole time. But yes, COVID really helped with that um, in terms of people are now happy to work completely remotely. I mean, one of one of the things about the the states and and the UK in terms of if we're talking about location within jurisdictions is the the support you get from the market is absolutely phenomenal. And so, in in the UK's case in particular, all of the incubators and the amount of time which prospects are willing to spend with you to help you is a massive boost to to legal tech companies generally. So, I think if we were in a different jurisdiction where there wasn't that enthusiasm for for legal technology, we would have suffered as a result. I just wanted to ask you, why is the UK so far ahead? They really leapt ahead in legal technology and data access. How, how did that happen? I, I still don't quite understand how they made that jump uh, so quickly. Sure. Well, thanks. Thanks for saying that. I, I think we're we're in a really highly competitive market in the UK, and so the the, the proportion of um, fixed cost work in key transactional areas which we do is is much higher in the states in that if you if you have a business model which on which you get paid by the hour efficiency um isn't really something that you want um or that is certainly a priority if if as as you were saying earlier if the, if the 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 best attorneys have people queuing at their door for their advice then they're, they're not going to turn them away so that they can become more efficient so i think market forces are, are a big thing um Deregulation of legal services is massive and and sustained over here. So non-lawyers owning interests in law firms has really helped the industry in terms of external capital coming in. And and then generally, um, uh, knowledge management, so investing centrally in the knowledge management of our our firms has been a a massive thing. And there is more of a, the brand of the firm is put forward in the UK. So uh, much more, in, my impression is much more than in the States. So in the States, it's about the attorney and their own business and eat what you kill for that particular partner. Whereas in the UK, it's, it's much more about the firm and, and, and that facilitates um, investment, central investment for the, for the overall firm in, in knowledge management and, and legal technology. So those are a few of the factors which, which affect it, in my opinion. 
Sticking with the place theme, you mentioned the word jurisdictions and law is fundamentally place-based by its very nature. I'm interested as to how does that affect the, the expansion or scalability of law tech solutions? Sure, there are there are aspects of law tech solutions which are jurisdiction specific, but on the whole, it translates very well. I think it's more of an execution and sales problem when you move from one jurisdiction to another rather than the technology in in most cases. Certainly, for you know the the UK to any common law jurisdiction, I'd, I'd count the count the US in that um, works very well in terms of the, you know, solving the same problems and the practice of law happening broadly in the, in the same way, but with less of a litigation focus in the UK than there is in the, in, in the States, of course. But, um, no, I'd, I'd say it translates very well. Um, what, what do you think, Josh? Yeah. So I think there's, there's two areas that, that are really clearly indicative of that. One is, is contract AI. So contract AI is kind of in the maybe the second quarter of, uh, of its evolution. It's very, very heavily used um, around the world. And the, the biggest competitors are, there's probably one, there's one Canadian based, they're, they're New York Canadian based, uh, there's one New York based, and then there's one in the UK uh, based in London. So that are probably the top three, that, that's very consistent. So contracts, especially in common law countries, um, very consistent. And then, then France has its own contract AI um, ecosystem as does Germany. Um, litigation is going to be jurisdiction specific. So you need to get the data. So those data sets are are pretty unique and they require sometimes unique curation and, and extraction techniques, as well as you know, judges and, and others to oversee it. Um, that is, you know, particularly important for, for, for the litigation side. It's another area, and I'd say in litigation, where you really need academics, jurists, policymakers, and then law firms and, the, and actual companies, the litigants, yeah, uh, they need to have a space to come together and, and um, communicate uh, to, to create great solutions because you can't, you can't really do that um, uh, divorced from the, you know, the actual data, the substance, and the, and the jurisdictional information. You brought up two really key words there, actually, as you were talking, which was uh, community and then also academia within that. My perception is that academia or the university setup is very different in, in North America with, with um, in the fee structures, et cetera, and how research is funded compared to the UK, but also then the, the access to talent, et cetera. So what's the importance of the communities? Where does academia fit into that and its relationship with industry in, in your respective areas? Anything you can do in a U.S. institution, I think you can do in a U.K. institution now. I think the, the funding structures have—they're still maybe more complicated, and alumni identifications are a little different. But I think you could do any of that because, again, the U.K. Um, higher education brands are so um, strong globally. You can get funding from all over the world, co- companies and others. So, um, but but the U.S. can be fast to, to to do that. So I think universities play a unique role. What I still don't see enough of is the most needful product projects in the world are the least well-funded. You know, criminal law issues, constitutional law issues, these sort of analogs for the UK and, the, and, and Canada and other common law countries. So the most needful projects, the, the largest projects are the least funded. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I think, Josh, you'll you, um, know far more about this than, than I do on the universities. I mean, the most... 
in in our particular sphere um we we interact with the universities through their relationships with with law firms where they're where they're incubating technology and helping to move forward the state of the art but um you know the ministry of justice in the uk is is very interested in technology and can take a take a a, a a broader view about improving access to justice than than any individual law firm would but i i totally agree that um outside of the commercial sphere um in the in the criminal law then in particular it's it's much harder to get these projects going that was james quinn and joshua walker speaking to me hillary smith allen you've been listening to beyond the capital podcast from supertech a new series that explores the future of technology in the world of work. Please do rate, review and subscribe on your normal podcast app. And do get in touch if you have topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes. To reach us, email us on hello at supertechwm.com.